0: Never before have we had such a blessed opportunity
1: to build the more perfect union of our founders' dreams. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
2: That is the true genius of America. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We dare not
0: forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution.
1: The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We'll light our country
0: and all who serve it, and the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! America, we have come so far. We have seen so much, but there's so much more to do.
1: Did you know that in the state of Hawaii, it's illegal to place a coin in one's ear? In Connecticut, by law, a pickle must be able to bounce. In my home state of California, it's actually illegal to whistle for a lost canary before 7 a.m. In South Dakota, it's illegal to sleep in a cheese factory. In Vermont, it's illegal for women to wear fake teeth without their husband's approval. In Arizona, it's illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. Some of the wacky laws that sit on America's law books are hilarious, and the stories behind them are even funnier. But less comical than these laws were those of the Puritans. To try keeping people in God's good graces, they did things like drive an awl through someone's tongue for swearing in public. And they even locked a sea captain in the stocks for kissing his wife in public after being away for three months. But even more concerning than these were their laws regarding worship. The first of these laws was in 1610 in the state of Virginia. It said that if you missed church twice, you were whipped publicly. And the third time, you were put to death. Three strikes and you're out. These laws are known as Sunday Blue Laws, mostly because of the blue paper that they were written on. Although they were running away from the Church State Union of England and from Europe's Church State Tyranny of the Dark Ages, with time, the Puritans ended up enforcing religious laws of their own, persecuting even their own fellow Christians. Rhode Island itself, established by Roger Williams to be a refuge of religious freedom, passed a Sunday law just 43 years after it was founded, requiring church attendance on Sunday. Why is this such a concern? Because God operates on freedom of choice. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nor when Jesus walked this earth, do we see God forcing people to worship him. First John 4 verse 8 says, God is love. And love in our hearts as a response toward God cannot be forced. It is to be freely chosen. In early America, this wasn't happening when people went to church on Sundays to avoid being whipped or killed. Now you may think, well, yeah, but who really cares? I mean, that was three and four hundred years ago. It was. But did you know that about half of the American states still have blue laws on their books? Yeah, you say, but they're inactive and they're just a thing of the past right? Friends, these Sunday blue laws may be lying dormant like a volcano never expected again to portray its power, but prophecy predicts the almost unthinkable that this lamb-like, Christ-like nation that would arise, this nation that from its founding would separate religion and government, that the United States of America would one day pass laws to enforce worship. Revelation 13, verses 11 to 15 say, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 13, he performs great signs, that is miracles, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the sight of the earth or on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The image of the beast is mentioned four times within just two verses. This is reminiscent of those three faithful Hebrew boys who would not bow down to the golden image that the king of Babylon was forcing everyone to worship. Similarly, the image of the beast at the end of time is a compromised church united with state, that is, government, forming a new system. And it's called the image to the sea beast because it's a picture of the first beast, the Roman church state system. Now, I've got a friend who had a baby recently, and wow, wow. That boy looks just like his daddy. I mean, if you put a beard on the baby, it'd almost be hard to tell them apart. It's fair to say that he is the spitting image of his dad. Bible prophecy warns us that one day not far distant, the United States will repudiate or overturn every principle of its constitution and it'll be the spitting image of the Church of the Inquisition and the Dark Ages. You may say, Justin, that's crazy. How could that ever happen in the land of the free? Friends, I don't want you to just take my word for it. So I'm going to share a number of quotes with you. And these are just a few of the voices of what is a swelling chorus of people and movements that are advocating this very thing. But before I do, check out this amazing quote from founding father George Washington. He received a letter in 1789 from the United United Baptist Churches in Virginia, and they were concerned that the Constitution may not protect religious liberty and that it could eventually enable the government to make laws regarding religion. On May 10, George Washington penned his reply. He made it clear. If anything in that document even left a loophole for the loss of religious freedom, he would never have signed it. And then he says this, And if I could now conceive that the general government might ever be so administered as to render the liberty of conscience insecure, I beg you will be persuaded that no one would be more zealous than myself to establish effectual barriers against the horrors of spiritual tyranny and every species of religious persecution. He then wrote that every man is accountable to God alone for his religious opinions. Now we know these weren't just the feelings of George Washington because a few months later the first 10 amendments to the Constitution were voted, beginning with these words in the first amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. They clearly separated church and state, religion and government. The Founding Fathers had read the crimson chapters of history, painted red by the blood of millions of people, killed simply for not worshipping as the prevailing church state power prescribed. Never once in the Bible did God's people have a priest who was also their king. Religious and government leaders in Israel did not cross over. Jesus recognized this separation of church and state as well when he said in Matthew 22 verse 21, give to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are god the bible teaches that no matter what you do or don't believe so long as it doesn't lead to the harm of other people you're free to practice your beliefs however you so choose the founding fathers knew this and recognized the absolute importance of it but unfortunately more recent american leaders including some supreme court justices have not Notice the huge shift in thinking over time. In 1947, Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black reminded everyone that, in the words of Jefferson, there is a wall of separation between church and state. Then he added strongly that this wall must be kept high and impregnable. But sadly, just 43 years later, in 1990, in a Supreme Court case, uh, Justice Antonin Scalia said that religious liberty is a luxury that we can no longer afford. Wow! Instead of a God-given right for all, Scalia called it a luxury. And it'll be interesting to see with time what the newly appointed Supreme Court Justice believes about religious liberty, especially since they're the ones with power to interpret the U.S. Constitution. Now on this topic, One organization that we need not guess about is modern Catholicism. In an encyclical letter in 1888, Pope Leo called it the greatest perversion of liberty and that fatal principle of the separation of church and state. This push against humanity's God-given right of liberty of conscience was largely why America, for decades, was not so open to the presence of the Pope. In fact, the first U.S. visit that any pope made wasn't until 1965, nearly 200 years after its founding. But attitudes have drastically shifted. To mention just a few, in 1992, U.S. President Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II were pictured here on the cover of Time magazine, and it read, Holy Alliance, How Reagan and the Pope Conspired to Assist Poland's Solidarity Movement and hasten the Demise of Communism. Very interesting. For the first time in history, the president and the Pope worked together to achieve a political goal. But what about the people? Has there been a shift in attitude there? In Pope John Paul II's visit to St. Louis in 1999, the crowds began singing a song to him. He's got the whole world in his hands. A song written for God. In 2005, at this Pope's funeral, you can see in this picture two former U.S. Presidents and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, along with the then current President George W. Bush and his wife, all kneeling at the body of the Pope. Another indication of the respect towards the Pope, not only as a religious leader, but as a political dignitary, is that when he arrives in America, he doesn't go to the President. The President comes to the airport to greet him. Similarly, when President Trump visited the Pope in Rome, he waited outside until the Pope gave the signal to let him come in so that they could speak. And in September of 2015, something took place for the first time ever. The Pope came in person and addressed a joint session of the United States Congress. And that's the lawmaking branch of government in America. He spoke for almost an hour and received a standing ovation, not only when he finished, but as well when he came in Uh, to the building. Remember that we're talking about this because of the organization that the Pope leads. As we've seen in our series, this power is bitterly against freedom of religion and is against separating church and state. And not too many centuries ago, this led to the exile, torture, and death of millions of people, all in the name of God. These are the dangers we face when faith becomes forced by law. You may say, well, there's just no way. There's no way a Sunday law could ever happen in America. Well, it nearly did. The year was 1888, and there had been a large push to get work on Sunday to be forbidden by law. Proponents finally gained the support of a senator named Henry Blair. And on May 21, he proposed to the United States Senate what was called the Sunday Rest Bill. And it read a bill to secure to the people the enjoyment of the first day as a day of rest and its and to promote its observance as a day of religious worship and it went on to say that if voted people wouldn't be allowed to work and have certain types of recreation on sunday but there was a man named alonzo t jones a history professor from the Battle Creek Adventist College in Michigan. It's now Andrews University. And Jones appeared before the U.S. Senate and argued as to why such a law would be unconstitutional and even dangerous. He compared the trajectory for them of American history and the history of ancient Rome, explaining how a progression of Sunday laws in the 4th and 5th centuries worked to bring about the union of church and government and eventually led to the medieval Europe that we know from history with all of its horrors. In the end, the power and clarity of Jones' arguments prevailed, and the bill was voted down. Now, that was about 130 years ago, but there have been others pushing for Sunday legislation. In 1976, editor of Christianity Today, Harold Lindsay, wrote, All businesses, including gasoline stations, that's petrol stations, and restaurants should close every Sunday by force of legislative fiat through the duly elected officials of the people. And in the 50 years since this quote was written, um, we have only seen an increase in calls for Sunday laws. In April of 2015, the Lord's Day Alliance in the USA said, Sunday is a mark of Christian unity. Just a few months ago, June 17 of, of this year, an article by Casey Chalk appeared in Crisis Magazine called, Bring back the blue laws. Interesting, huh? Listen to this. He was speaking of the COVID lockdown in the beginning, and he writes this. Americans, in those early quarantine days, after the haze of their Netflix binge had evaporated, woke up with a surprised appreciation for what earlier generations had considered normal, Sunday laws, all otherwise known as blue laws. As America returns to normality, we should consider these laws and their manifold benefits afresh. He then goes on to say that not just Christians would benefit from Sunday laws, but everyone. And in closing, he writes, if promulgated in a prudent and focused way, Sunday laws can cultivate virtue, strengthen neighborliness, and protect small businesses. Most importantly, they can help promote prayer and peace now when America needs them the most. Once again, friends, why is this significant? Because Revelation 13 says that this image to the beast, this church state system will create a law mandating a form of worship. All must obey or else they cannot buy or sell. And eventually, those who refuse this mandate will be put to death. Remember from our last message, we are to obey our government leaders. But if and when the laws of our land contradict the law of God, we must, like the apostles from Acts chapter 4, say, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, it's not only America that's taking steps toward broader Sunday legislation. An article from The Trumpet, 2009. Effective from January 1, 2010, Berlin must fall into line with the law institutionalizing Sunday as a day of rest and religious contemplation as contained in Germany's basic law. You know, when laws like this are enforced, It may change the outward conduct, but it can never change the heart. No wonder Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. God never forces his people to worship him, and neither should we. Now, it's not just Germany heading in this direction. Between 2014 and 2016, there have been laws regarding Sunday passed in Cyprus, Chile, the European Union. Poland, Brazil, Argentina, Milan, Germany, Hungary. IKEA in France was convicted for violation of a Sunday rest law. Uh, In Tonga, bakeries were banned from opening on Sundays in July of 2016. Incredible. All around the globe, steps are being taken to strengthen Sunday legislation. Now back to America. You may ask, how in the world would the U.S.? that's filled with such an eclectic mix of atheists and Hindus and Buddhists, Muslims, Catholics, Christians, ever pass a law about Sunday? Well, they need to rally around a common cause, maybe like concern for the planet. Right now, caring for the planet is unifying the world. Now, before I share some quotes with you, allow me to say, we should care for the environment. God gave Adam and Eve this responsibility way back in the Garden of Eden, and it extends to us today. There's nothing wrong with wanting to take care of our planet, so long as it doesn't lead to the resurrection of Sunday lots. And before you dismiss that as far-fetched, listen to this. From 2009, an article in The Guardian called Slow Sunday, The Simple Solution to Global Warming. It reads as follows. We cannot wait until governments are enlightened enough to legislate and cap the carbon emissions. Matters are urgent. We have to act now without any delay. One thing we can easily do to achieve this goal is that we can declare Sunday to be a fossil fuel free day or a low carbon day at least. An energy or at least an energy saving day. We can start individually and collectively. The long journey to cut carbon dioxide emissions can start in the here and now. Not long ago, Sunday used to be a day of rest, a day of spiritual renewal, a day for families to come together. We can and should restore Sunday to a day for Gaia, a day for the earth. This will be good for our personal health as well as for the health of the planet. We will have time for our friends, time to play with our children, and time for the family. So two arguments. First, for the sake of the earth, and second, for the sake of the family and society. Finally, they closed by saying, at a stroke, we can reduce 10% of our carbon emissions into the atmosphere by making Sunday a low carbon day, and at the same time, make ourselves healthier and happier. Fascinating. Now, this was way back in 2009, but have these suggestions stopped? Listen to this from the New Boston Post, April 1 of this year. At least one change resulting from the quarantine could do wonders to reinvigorate our national sense of family, faith, and community. Let's give some serious thought to reinstating at least some of the time-honored Sunday closure laws, sort of a one-day-per-week modified stay-at-home request. Just a request, they say. Why? They go on. Such an action would rededicate our society to a regular day of rest, family meals, civic associations, and religious observation. observance. By rededicating each Sunday as a common day of rest, we would say that the life of America is much more than never pausing commerce and ever grinding bureaucracy. One might suggest that today's, with today's coronavirus, we are, in a tragic and certain sense, reliving or going back in history. Another venerable, venerable aphorism says, History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Amazing. Truly, history is beginning to rhyme, and we see the foundation being laid for the image of the beast. But would everyone ceasing to work and travel for one day a week really have an impact on the environment? Actually, yes. Researchers in New York recently told the BBC that their early results showed carbon monoxide, mainly from cars, had been reduced by nearly 50% compared to before COVID-19. People in crowded cities in India share that they hear birds in places where busy traffic had driven them out for years. The amount of litter in most major cities has actually dropped since COVID has uh, taken place as well. Interestingly enough, Listen to a quote that CNN Rome from April of this year, 2020, said. Pope Francis said that the coronavirus pandemic is one of nature's responses to humans ignoring the current ecological crisis. This isn't surprising, though, as his entire encyclical letter in 2015 was about the environment. A Catholic priest from the Philippines recently took up the same message saying... So maybe one way to look at the current crisis is to see it as the planet's desperate demand for a Sabbath. But it's not only priests. Christian pastors are also calling for rest on Sunday. Listen to Pastor Robert Field of the Bethel Baptist Church just a few months ago. God is not pleased with what we have been doing to his day of worship. Therefore, he is shutting it down for a time, meaning the COVID-19 shutdown. Perhaps with the loss of Sunday in the weeks ahead, we will begin to see its necessity, he says, and stop fooling around with the fourth commandment. This pastor is right. God is not pleased with us breaking his fourth commandment. But that commandment says that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And God even begins that commandment with the word, remember, he knew that the majority of the world would forget that his Sabbath is the seventh day, Saturday, Saturday. The Sabbath was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before Jews or any other people group even existed. Jesus kept the seventh day Sabbath. His disciples kept it on into the New Testament. And Isaiah 66 verse 22 even says that in the the heavens and the new earth, we're going to be worshipping God from Sabbath to Sabbath. Question. If Vladimir Putin... Went to the United States and announced that he wanted all Americans to celebrate America's independence, fireworks, barbecues, and all, on the 5th of July and never again on the 4th of July. You think that Americans would obey? Of course not. And if anyone did, what would that say about their loyalty to America? Friends, God's Seventh-day Sabbath is a sign of allegiance to Him. And He told us to rest on it, to spend special time with Him upon it. But at its core, the Sabbath isn't about a day. It's about leadership. It's about loyalty. Loyalty to God. A few more quotes. Here's a recent tweet from a mayor in Canada. Just putting this out there for consideration. Once we kick COVID-19's rear... I'd suggest that everything be closed on Sundays again so that we can appreciate the importance of what taking a pause in our busy lives really means. Very interesting. Now, what about the Jews who rest and worship on Saturday? Could they ever want Sunday legislation? Listen to this from the Jerusalem Times earlier this year. Because of Shabbat observance in Israel, that's Sabbath observance, greenhouse gas emissions are reduced by a third. Now, that's pretty amazing. He goes on to say, if every denomination of the Jewish people truly sanctified Shabbat as a non-consumer day of rest, and this example was followed by other faith communities, then Shabbat would save the Jewish people along with the entire planet. A real universal day of rest could cut greenhouse gas emissions by one-seventh, allowing our turbulent planet to calm back into a balance. And you'd think that the push in Israel would be strictly for Saturday as the Shabbat. But in 2015, Israeli leaders put forth a bill to propose making Sunday a day of rest. Pretty incredible. What about Muslims, you say? What about followers of Islam? Their day of rest is Friday. Check this out. The Deccan Herald, April 2, 1997, said that the day before, Pakistan... And I quote, A nation of 120 million Muslims altered its day of rest from Friday to Sunday. Amazing. What about the agnostics, the atheists? Why would they ever rally around something like Sunday laws? Listen to this from greensabbathproject.net. And I quote, Green Sabbath is a non-religious, non-political, and non-profit campaign which aims to raise awareness and to encourage people uh, to help slow climate change by observing at least one carbon footprint-free day each week. On any day of the week, we call it symbolically a Green Sabbath Day. Once again, friends, these are all good things. Family time, caring for the environment, having a rest from the busyness of life. But the problem will arise for two reasons. First, Sunday is the wrong day. It's not God's holy day. Secondly, Bible prophecy and history make clear that it will become enforced by law. So it's the wrong day and it will be kept the wrong way because it'll be kept based on force. God never forces us, friends. Force is the wrong way to get people into church. They should come, if they come, by choice. You may ask, could the conflict at the end of time really involve the Sabbath? Absolutely. Just look at Jesus the religious leaders started plotting his death over the issue of the Sabbath. And he told his disciples in John 15, verse 20, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. In Revelation 12 and 14, describe God's last day people as keeping all the commandments of God. This is a sign of allegiance to God as creator and it infuriates the devil, the dragon. And in one final struggle, he'll use the beasts of Revelation 13 to deceive the world, And try forcing them to break God's law. But there will stand a people faithful to God no matter the cost. Filled with His goodness and compassion. They will reflect to the world the love of God and the light of the gospel even in darkest of times. Friends, I'm excited. The next presentation is going to be talking more about this. So don't miss it. It was 2 p.m. on July 4. The Declaration of Independence was just voted. The story is told that a man rang the bell of Independence Hall when he heard the good news. It came to be known as the Liberty Bell. But in February of 1846, a Philadelphia newspaper shared some sad news. The old Independence Bell rang its last clear note on Monday in honor of the birthday of Washington and now hangs in the great city steeple, irreparably cracked and dumb never to sound again, that bell with its Bible verse about freedom engraved upon it, cracked. This broken bell stands as a reminder that someday the great principles that marked the founding of the United States will also become irreparably cracked. Today, we can praise God, friends, that America still stands as a nation where religious liberty rings throughout the land. And whether you're in Australia, America, or beyond, I want to invite you to make the most of the religious freedoms that we still have. One of the best ways that you can do this, friends, is to dig into the Bible and study it. If that's something that you'd like to do, I want to invite you to call or text the number you see on your screen. Whether you want to learn more about some of the things we've covered in these presentations, or if you have other questions, we'd love to provide you with some amazing resources that'll take you deeper in your study of God's Word and grow you in your relationship with Him. I hope you enjoyed that presentation. And if you did, know that this is just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, on what the Bible has to say on this topic. And so if you'd like more information for personal study on your own, or if you'd like someone to be uh, journeying with you through some extra material to teach you what the Bible has to say on the topic, please text or call the number that you see on your screen and just share the word INFO. And let us know, because we'd love to connect with you. Good evening, and welcome back
0: to our America in the End live Q&A session, where we get a little bit deeper into the topic of the evening and field questions from Facebook and YouTube. We're happy that you guys have joined us. I'm here tonight with just Justin and Sherissa Tarosian. We've lost one of our crew members, while <laughs> uh, Southwell. He's uh, spending some time with family and uh, getting some R&R, but he'll be back with us tomorrow night. So um, even though he's not here, we think that uh, the Holy Spirit still is, and that we'll have a good time together conversing with you guys about uh, tonight's presentation. I really liked it. It was probably one of my favorite talks of the series so far, Justin. You did a really great job. Um, A lot of powerful quotes and a lot of powerful insights from the Bible. Um, Yeah, I don't even know where to begin because there is so much that we covered. Uh, But before we do begin our conversation, I just want to just let you all know, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, you can just, uh, there in your... uh, Chat box. Chat box, thank you, Charissa. (laughs) You can just just put questions in, and our moderator will (laughs) funnel those questions on to me, and we'll answer your questions right here, right now. So um, I want to just ask a question based, guys, on my listening to the to the uh, message for this evening. Um, and that was that, uh, okay, what are ways in your thinking America is repudiating the Constitution? Because you mentioned that at the beginning, and I wrote this down at the beginning of your presentation. Mm. So uh, we've talked about this before, but I wanted to start again because this it was in this presentation. Mm. Uh, you said, Justin, that the United States, in order to do what the Bible says it's going to do, has to
1: repudiate its constitution. Mm, that's On right. any level, do we see that happening? No. Yeah, great question. Uh, I would actually say, just to, to echo something I said toward the end of the message, uh, I think I said something along the lines of, you know, we can praise God that today here in Australia, in America, we still have uh, religious freedom. Enshrined, protected in law. Well, Wilde mentioned the other night that it's not actually, I mean, it is on the law books in Australia, but it's evidently not, you know, there's no real strength behind it. But, um, in practicality, uh, we do have it here in Australia, religious freedom and, uh, in the United States as well. And so I would say there are no, there are no massive, uh, that I can think of off the top of my head, and maybe Sharissa or Matt, maybe even you can think of some, but there are none that come to my mind. There are no examples as of yet as to uh, sweeping attacks on uh, religious liberty that are widespread, that are at a, a legal level. Um, now, having said that, COVID has changed a lot of things. Uh, as we saw, there are some, and as we talked about in a previous presentation, um, you have pastors like Pastor John MacArthur in Southern California, who is going to church, he's preaching, he has thousands of people coming to his church, and um, he and those who are coming to his church say, we have this right protected in the Constitution of the United States, in the First Amendment, uh, we have the right to assemble, we have the right uh, to practice our faith, and therefore, you can't tell us in a lockdown that we cannot come because that's enshrined at the, the federal level, the the nationwide level in our laws. And so that's something that I think COVID is really throwing a lot of question marks. Um, it went to court, I think four times in the last, the fourth and last time, unless they've met another and I've missed the news. Uh, the fourth and final time, they said, we're going to have to refer it to a higher court because we've never had to deal with an issue like this before. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say that uh, that closely tied to religious liberty is freedom of speech. Mm. And I can say, uh, given this last election and how people were on Twitter, on social media, uh, big tech is like, you know, Google, Twitter, Facebook. They are like more powerful than most empires, most nations, most countries in the world. Okay. And yet there are very few laws that actually govern how they interact. Uh, these guys can affect You know, public thought in huge ways. And we see right now during this election time that, that things are being censored on Twitter that should be free to be able to be expressed on an open platform like Twitter. And so that's very concerning. And I would say keep your eye open for that because when freedom of speech starts to disappear and there's a dictatorial, maybe a socialist type of system that starts in the United States, if if, it, if that happens, um, basically the crux of what I'm saying is if freedom of speech disappears, then soon after that, religious liberty will as well, no doubt, because the two are very connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you want to say something to add to I, that? I think he answered
2: that well. He answered it well. I, I, think, so I think so
0: too. I think a Good thank job. God. Yeah. Yes. Amen. Um,
1: but okay. yeah, we can rejoice. We can thank God that right now in Australia, in a practical sense, uh, And in America, in a legal sense, on the law books, Hmm. um there are people in place that are protecting and they exist to protect the constitution, the bill of rights. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. We still have a time of peace when we can share the gospel with people who don't yet know the Lord. Mm -hmm. And how do you guys feel about hate speech laws, right? Because some people feel a bit wary about hate, hate
0: speech laws, not because they want anyone speaking hatefully, but rather because they're afraid of those people who might define what they believe is hateful. Mm -hmm. So if you have a set of laws, you know, that are against hate speech, uh, you know, we would all say, well, in a way we all kind of say good because people shouldn't be speaking hatefully to other people. Mm. But then as times go on, who's going to define what's hateful and what's not hateful? And do we really want governments of the world telling us what we can and can't say? Because what if they just decide that Mm -hmm. my belief system is hateful Mm -hmm. because I disagree with someone else? Like who decides that? And usually I heard this one guy say, I started this as a question, so I'm going to just stop right here and I'll tell you what I heard one guy say. So what do you feel about hate speech laws? Is this a possible, you know, indication of a future infringement upon religious liberty in the Western world, Australia and everywhere else? I think so. Yeah.
2: I think in, um, my dad was telling me about some law that they're thinking of passing in the UK. Maybe they've already passed it about how you could be arrested for something you said in your living room, hate speech, that was considered hate speech. Oh boy. So that, to me, I mean, how do you define that? That's coming into your personal space, even you can't even express yourself freely, mm. that, to me, would lead to some sort of restriction on yeah. religious liberty right? Mm. also.
1: Yeah.
0: That's heavy. Yeah, that's right. You know, any thoughts on that, Justin? Oh, just, you were, I'd love to hear what you were about oh, to yeah. say well, before. Well, I've heard this one person say that uh, the people who define hate speech and who enforce hate speech laws are probably the last people you would want doing mm. it. Mm. And mm. that's, uh, People uh, that are not usually elected to their positions that are not accountable to you, and they're usually ideologues. That is to say, they've they've latched onto a certain ideology, and they're just driven by that ideology. And mm. and that's all they can see. That's all they can feel. That's all they can think. Mm. And so, therefore, they they very easily interpret things as hateful that they that they just disapprove of or disagree with. Um, and so, yeah, who draws the line? What is the line? Where do we get a standard? Yeah that we use to draw lines. Yeah, this very, is a very scary. confusing reality. So as soon as you get into the place where you're starting to think you have the right to legislate what other people can say, you're basically saying you can legislate what other people can think. Mm-hmm. And like what you're saying, then that's just one step in the direction of removing the right to worship God in accordance with your conscience. And by the way, too, this is just something that I think is that it blows me away that people can't understand this. Uh, religious liberty. The right to worship God the way you want to, and to practice your faith the way you want to, it also provides the right to not worship God the mm-hmm. way you want to. That's so, right. really, it's all about freedom of conscience mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, maybe philosophical or religious beliefs and ideas. And so, I think the atheists should be very concerned with the right yeah. of, of of the freedom of religion because uh, if the freedom of religion is removed. Well, then maybe the freedom to not believe in something will be removed as well. So. That's right. Absolutely. And go ahead.
2: And true worship of God comes as a love response to Him. That's what the Bible teaches, and I think that you mentioned a verse, John fourteen, verse fifteen. Jesus says, "If you love me, keep my commandments." Mm. So, if a government removes yeah. the right for you to choose in your faith, then it's actually removing the opportunity for you to be saved.
0: That's right. Mm. Yeah. That's right. Oh, so good. Well, we've got some questions. Can let her come in, and so uh, Renee on Facebook uh, has asked this question. Actually, sorry, rename. we're going to get to uh, someone whose screen name is Bifo Marin. Uh, I don't think that's a real name. Maybe it is. Um, uh, it's a name I've never heard before. Cool name. Um, Bifo on YouTube asks, with the upcoming economic great reset, do you think central bank digital currencies will be used to manipulate what Christians can and cannot do? Mm. seems to be that way in China, with a social credit score.
2: That's interesting.
0: Yeah, that's a
1: great question.
2: I was just thinking, on that note, you know, Revelation chapter 13 tells us that at the end of time, uh, this image of the beast that's going to cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell Except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So there is a restriction in your ability to buy and sell, mm-hmm. according to Scripture. And any kind of reset, like what's mentioned, I don't know much about that specifically, but I just know that the Bible does speak about this. Um, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, ways. absolutely. I mean, the more control that government has over our money. I mean, it's funny because you know, if you had read Revelation thirteen, what Sharissa just shared with someone a hundred years ago. They would have said, yeah, right. How is the government going to control what you buy or sell? You mm-hmm. know, like, yeah, mm-hmm. they might be able to give you an ID tag and tell every merchant, Hey, don't sell anything to anyone that doesn't have the right ID tag. Um, but ultimately, like, it's, it wouldn't really have been possible at all to freeze people's bank accounts. Now mm-hmm. I don't even carry cash on me, actually. <laughs> yeah. Like. I just use my card for everything. Some people don't even take their cards anymore. They use their phone. All their cards are on their phone. Mm. And so we've seen this shift toward a cashless society. But I should say that um, as we saw, like a Sunday law nearly came in in 1888 with the Blair Bill, if you watched the presentation earlier, and it would have happened then. And so a system could have been put in place even then. Uh, it doesn't need to be a cashless society in order for a a dictatorial, controlling government to freeze your spending. Uh, there are other ways. In fact, it can happen so quickly and so easily. I'm not saying Australia is a dictatorial government whatsoever. It's a wonderful government at the moment. Um, uh, but when we had COVID, the COVID lockdown, and everybody was buying toilet paper off the shelves, um, and everything else, bags of beans and rice and staples, if that had continued for another two weeks or three weeks, the government would have been forced to create a system of identification, you go into a store, every single Mm -hmm. grocery store within a 300 kilometer or however long radius would have record in an online database probably of what you purchased and they'd say, sorry, you bought a bag of beans yesterday. You're going to need to wait till next week. That's right. And so that is what would have had to have happened here in order to just make sure that people don't hoard and panic buy. And it would have been a good thing. But it's a little bit scary in the sense that we know from Bible prophecy that eventually a system like that will be a bad thing and will be connected to forcing people to worship a certain way and forbidding them to worship the way that God has told us to. That's fantastic. Okay, good. Uh, so Liz has a question from YouTube. And
0: um, by the way, you seem a little bit eager to maybe say something else.
2: No, I'm happy. Okay, you're good? Yep. Awesome. Go.
0: Okay, so Liz is asking from YouTube, uh, will this, and I suppose she means the things we see in Revelation 13, and the things you were describing in your presentation, Justin. Will this happen overnight, mm. or will it come
1: about gradually? Will
0: mm. the U.S. President make the decision?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, what's interesting about Revelation 13, when it talks about this image of the beast, and really tonight and last Thursday, Sharissa's last presentation, presentation number six, were two parts of the same message, and they're about the image of the beast this combination of government and religion, church and state, that the Bible says would happen at the end of time. But there's an interesting verse here in Revelation 13, and um, it says this in verse 14. It says, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs or miracles which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So here... We see that it's a, a government power, and it's in this case the earth beast of Revelation thirteen, telling those who dwell on the earth to set up this image of the beast. It's not a top-down, uh completely dictatorial action. The rulers are gonna decide it and we're all stuck as their peons uh type of system. It's actually uh a republic, it's a democracy, a democratic republic, the United States, and so it's going to be a push from the people mm-hmm. at the foundational level. And they're going to be pushing the leaders and saying, guys, we need to do this. We need to get back to God. We're dishonoring his day. And sadly, the Bible says they're going to choose the wrong day and force people, as we saw in some of the uh, articles tonight, you know, get back to bring back the blue laws. You know, mm-hmm. we need to wake up to the, the value of these things in our past and these Sunday closure laws. Um, basically, to to answer the question, it's not going to be from a president or a pope strictly. Yes, powers are working, you know, in leadership that are setting things up but really the bible says that it's going to be the people that are demanding this and that the leaders will respond to their requests mm. and
2: when you think about it that's exactly what happened with um, the crucifixion of jesus that's true because pontius pilate did what he did because the people told him we want barabbas instead of jesus so mm. it's, again people
1: so he had
0: weak unprincipled political leadership yeah. that was easily swayed by that's the right. mob yeah that's so he had mob rule Driving a weak politician who was worried about his career mm-hmm. to kill the son of God. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's interesting because I've got a question here that I'll kind of maybe ask now. I won't ask the question the way that I did, but this leads into the question. Some people conjecture, is it from the politically right or the politically left that we have to worry? Mm. It, right? Because historically in the Western world, The politically right has, well, not altogether, but the politically right has been identified as religious Mm. and the politically left is seen as secular. Mm. But there's tons of religious Christians on the left Mm. and on the right. So where's the danger coming from? You're talking about Jesus and Mm. where did his persecution come from?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I was talking with this guy named Matt Parr a few years ago. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> here's what he said. <laughs> no, no, I had always thought that. I thought, you know, it's gonna, right, the pendulum swings to the left, right, where there's a more uh, secular leader and a left-leaning type of politician um and leadership in government and then you know that's going to cause it to swing to the right because people are going to say oh we need to get back to god and god is taken out of schools and all of this and immorality is rising and then i thought that it was just going to be like when it swings way right that people finally go hey let's let's make laws but uh actually i'll let you share what you shared uh with me with everybody else as to how it's not necessarily because this when matt said this to me I think it was like four or five years ago at a at a know. meeting we were both at, but we, I asked you the question, and when you said it, I was just like, wow, that makes perfect sense, but I never would have thought about it because I always pictured it like a pendulum. Right,
0: well, you know, you right, well, you know I, I can hardly remember what happened last
1: week. I have, I
2: have
0: three kids at home, you know, and a very busy life, so I can just shoot from the hip and guess about what yeah. I said. Well, what I'd say now is that uh, Revelation 13 does not say whether... What happens in Revelation 13 comes from the right or to the left. Mm. Uh, the Bible just says what's going to happen and that the United States is going to play an integral role in the world setting up a system which will uh, be similar to the church of the, the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, when, we, when we consider the church of the Middle Ages, let's ask the question, was it left or right? Well there was everything involved mm-hmm. in true. that system. Yes. There were radically, fanatically, Sadduce. rigid religious people, mm-hmm. and there were people who are relatively irreligious. But they were just all under this system that the church kind of controlled. And so mm-hmm. it's very naive to suppose that it'll come from this side or that yeah. side, and that's our only danger. What the Bible presents in Revelation 13 is a global, universal mm-hmm. arraying of powers against God's, truth Mm. that's what it shows and so the person who's going to hide themselves in a political party to make themselves feel safe uh no that's that's a bad idea probably the best thing to do is hide yourself in the son of god and in the promises of god's word and in the strength of god's spirit and that's Mm. your safety and maybe uh not maybe but you will then be secure and taken from this planet and be a part of god's kingdom when he sets that
2: up yeah that's a beautiful point because you know Revelation 13, if the Bible ended in Revelation 13, it would be the worst ending ever. Yeah. But it doesn't. Right after it comes chapter 14, and in verse 1 it says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his Father's name written on their foreheads. Hmm. So those are people that have the mark of the beast, and those are people that don't have that. They have the Father's name written on their foreheads.
0: Yeah. That's right. They're not, they're not members of a certain political party that stops bad things from happening. They have the Father's name. Yeah. And when Jesus is crucified... The mm. religious right, which was led by the Pharisees, and the religious left, which was led by the Sadducees, they both combined together yeah, that's right. to arrest and condemn the Son of God. And yeah. so I think what we see depicted in uh, the crucifixion of the Son of God, mm. you see depicted at the end of time, it's just that it's not Jesus being crucified physically, it's the body of Christ, the true believers, the true mm. followers of God being persecuted on a global scale, yeah, and uh, and as your presentations are going to show, uh, mm-hmm. God's going to come through, mm-hmm. and we know that He's going to come through because of all the predictions that have come through yeah. so far. So, Amen. the glory of God is going to be lighting the world, and mm. you might—I won't say too much more about that because it's going to be tomorrow. a whole presentation tomorrow night. Tomorrow night? Yeah.
2: But yeah. on on what you just said there, everybody's going to come together at the end of time, no matter where they sit on the political spectrum. Um, It's interesting as you read the Gospels and you look at when they started to consolidate against Jesus. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 3, it says in verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. And why were they doing that? It was actually over how Jesus kept the Sabbath.
0: Mm. Oh, interesting.
2: Yes, interesting. Ah,
0: It's such a coalition of forces in the crucifixion of the Son of God. I just mentioned left and right, but I forgot to mention the Roman state. Mm-hmm. To the Roman state, you had the Jews. The Jews were divided up in right and left, mm-hmm. theologically speaking, and they both came together against the Son of God, and they brought him before the government, and they crucified him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they didn't like how he kept the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. They didn't appreciate how he went about it. Okay, so let's get to some more questions here, guys. Um, Renee Edmund, um, uh, I. I'm so awkward about last names for some (laughs) silly reason. Renee on YouTube has said, asked, how can a day of
1: rest on Sunday stop us from worshiping God on Sabbath? Mm. Yeah, great question. Uh, Great question. And I'm trying to think of if I have this written in a file in my computer. Sharissa, you might. I don't think I do on this computer. The
2: law of Congress or something?
1: Well, I was going to mention in history, um, yeah, in history, we see that there were three levels of Sunday laws that were passed in the fourth and fifth centuries. Uh, in 321 was the first one where Emperor Constantine made a law. He made an edict. You had to close your stores. No one could work, um, unless it was absolutely essential work. No one could work on Sundays. This was to unite the pagans who worshiped on the day of the sun with the Christians who were growing in number. And Constantine, many historians say it was probably a political move more than a he was converted to Christianity sincerely kind of a move. Um, but either way, whatever was the case, he created this law. The second level of laws, and I don't have the dates with me, um, but uh, I can get them to you if you're interested tomorrow night or just call us, text the number, and I can send these, these dates and some historical references for you. Um, to if you want to share or for your own personal study. Uh, the second level of Sunday laws basically said that people had to worship on Sundays. They required people coming and worshiping um, at the you know temples and shrines and whatnot on Sundays. And then the third level of law that came later was that you could not rest on Saturday. So you could not keep the Bible Sabbath, which is the seventh day of the week, you had to work. So people, Christians, were forced to work at this point on that day and to break God's Sabbath. Because, mm. uh, yeah, you're right. Like, if if there was a Sunday law and, hey, we can't buy or sell or go out shopping or work on Sundays, big deal. Most of us have five-day work weeks anyway, right? Yeah. It's no problem to the uh, seventh-day Sabbath keeper. Mm. Um, but it's when those laws, when we see that freedom, when we see that happen, we know that freedoms are about to start disappearing in other areas. And it's very likely that history follow a similar pattern with those three stages of Sunday loss.
2: Yeah, and just also keep in mind that the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, you know, the first six chapters are stories, the last six chapters mostly prophecies, but those first six step chapters they are not just bedtime stories. They're stories that help us to prepare for the coming of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting that there are two stories, and it was mentioned on in the presentation last Thursday, I think it was. Yeah, Thursday. Uh, where there's two stories in the book of Daniel that show us how the end time scenario will look like and in the second one that i'm thinking of here in daniel chapter six we see that there is a violation an example of what the violation of the second clause of the first amendment looks like now in america it says this congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof but in daniel chapter six We see this played out in a story because King DeRice, he actually passed a law based on counsel from his advisors that no one should pray to any god but himself for 30 days. Mm. So that was an example of how it would actually prohibit you from worshipping as your conscience uh, called Mm -hmm. you to do Mm -hmm. and do what the government said instead.
0: Mm. That's so good. You know…
2: Sorry. Please, yeah, go. to it. Just yeah. finish that point. Yeah, please. When that happened, Daniel practiced civil disobedience because it's more important to be, obey God than to obey any government or any king. God's mm. God's mm. overall. And, and might I add,
1: the king himself—like that's powerful. That's exactly right. But the king himself. Sometimes we get this scenario in our minds, like oh, all the leaders are going to be the bad guys, and then. You know, all the all the people are, you know, those are the ones persecuted, God's faithful people. But God has his people everywhere, Mm -hmm. including in government. Daniel 6 says that Darius, King Darius, was not happy about this law. But there was a law that said that you can't change a law once you pass it, according to the Medes and Persians, right? Mm -hmm. And so he went and he was up all night praying for Daniel. And he said to Daniel, Daniel, your God, who you serve continually, he will save you. He is able to save you. And he comes first thing the next morning. And he cries out and he calls out and he's like, Daniel, has your God been able to save you? This was a government leader of a law that was just enforcing uh, erroneous worship, but he actually was praying for Daniel. Mm -hmm. And he ended up getting converted because when Daniel said, yes, the Lord has saved me miraculously, uh, at the end of Daniel 6... He basically says, everyone has to worship, which, you know, this wasn't God's will either. force isn't God's way, but just goes to show where the king's heart was. Mm-hmm. He said, everyone has to, no one can speak wrong about the God of Daniel because no one is able to save like this God. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of time, we're going to see in this conflict between good and evil, and uh, we're going to see a lot of people wake up to the fact that God's people are, are simply supporting Bible truth and that they're sincere followers of his and that the laws that are being passed to force worship are actually wrong and many even in leadership will give their lives to the lord mm, amen really good and Daniel 3 this is very important mm. Mm, yes
0: you see king the king of babylon making a golden image and commanding people that they have to worship that golden image when he plays the music many Biblical scholars have been confused over the years as to why the king of Babylon did that, because the Babylonians were not typically into forcing their religious worship upon their captives or on their government officials who were from various lands oftentimes. But there is a Bible scholar named William Shea who did a lot of research for many, many years and dig, you know, just he's not an archaeologist, but he he sought through archaeological uh uh I guess what do you call fragments and cuneiform tablets and all kinds of things to try to discover why in the world Daniel three has the King of Babylon forcing (laughs) worship. (laughs) And he, he came to this really interesting conclusion that there was a a rebellion in (laughs) Babylon and that destabilized the power uh, structure and King Nebuchadnezzar had to physically defend himself in his own temple. And so he Shea concludes that this was a loyalty test, a governmental test of loyalty. Not, it was wasn't a religious test. It was a test to your loyalty to that system, that mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. And so, Daniel 3, you have Babylon saying, you must do this. Mm. But they're not telling you what you can't do. So they're saying, you need to do this. This is a law. It's an affirmative law. You have to do this. But then in Daniel 6, as you mentioned, you have a law saying, not only uh, can you... Not only, um sorry, it's not about what you have to do, it's about what you can do. Mm-hmm. Mm. So in Daniel 3, a certain false form of worship is enforced. And then in Daniel 6, true worship is forbidden. So it's mm. a two step process, just mm. like what you were saying. Wow,
1: I've never seen that in Daniel. Yeah. That's powerful.
2: I like that too because it's so interesting. By the way,
0: quick comment because we yeah. need to get to our next questions.
2: Okay. In Daniel chapter 3, there's an image, and it's interesting the dimensions of that image are mentioned as being mm. 6 and 60.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And the image at the end is connected to the numbers 660 and 6. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Cool beans. So, there's a statement I want to read from uh, Bifo, who wrote it again, because this is a great comment. It's not a question. He says, economic left and right is much less important than the political axiom of authoritarian." versus libertarian government. And very few governments are becoming more focused on liberty. Mm. Mm. Awful. It's true. a It's statement. That's it deserves to be repeated. Okay, so uh, Ryan on Facebook asks, Hi Matt, Sharissa, and Justin. I was wondering if the Sunday law could initially come as a day of rest without prohibiting the biblical Sabbath. And if it does, would resting on Sunday as well as on the Sabbath be a violation of the fourth commandment?
1: Yeah, good question. So we kind of touched on it. You probably sent that question through before we got to touch on it. But in history, it was, the first step was no working on Sunday allowed. Sunday closure laws. By, and, I'm going to uh, interrupt you. Sorry, constantly. I didn't interrupt you.
0: No, that's yeah. not what he's asking. He's saying, if there's a Sunday law, yeah. and I just respect it, but there's not any prohibitions against worshiping on on God's rest day. Right. If I honor that law and just say, okay, cool, whatever. I'll, I'm not going to work on that day. I'm not going to, yeah. I'm going to respect mm-hmm. it. Am I then violating? Yeah. Yeah. I was building there, but yeah, oh, yeah, yeah
1: I was, yeah. It's all good. Sorry. It's good. I, I'll just cut to the chase. So the first step was <laughs> can't do, you can't work on Sundays. You can't have open stores, etc. cetera. Um, no problem there. The second step was you had to worship on Sundays, had to go to the temple. had to worship. Um, if it was that kind of a law, Uh, the first one, no problem. You know, no problem for Christians, uh, Bible, you know, Sabbath keeping Bible believing Christians who keep the seventh day. Holy, not a problem. The second step being forced to worship on a Sunday, um, that one is getting a whole lot closer to home. Um, now some churches, some Sabbath keeping churches might say, Hey, let's just have two services a week, right? Let's have one on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. And we'll have one on Sunday because it's not wrong to worship on a day. That's not Saturday we right? should
2: worship god every day. That's right.
1: We should worship god every day. Um and they could use it as an evangelistic opportunity the people that are worshipping cuz you know they're coming. But the third level in history that we find is the most toxic and dangerous one and that was that you cannot rest on the seventh day. You mm-hmm. cannot worship on that day. You must work. And so I think I may I may have actually missed answer the question again or maybe I hopefully I did get it. You know, there's no no, problem resting on Sunday, but yeah, Yeah, and it's not, the Bible, um, in the fourth commandment has nothing to say about, you know, uh, about the first day of the week and what you can and cannot do on it. Um, but yeah, the, it's when the, the seventh day Sabbath is targeted, um, and we are forced to break that day. And, you know, I would become very comfortable if I was being forced legally by law to religious worship. Um, you know, like being forced to worship on a Sunday, it would feel very strange and uncomfortable. And I don't know, like I would feel, I wouldn't feel like I was breaking God's seventh day Sabbath, but because at the end of time, there's this, uh, there's this, this battle between these two days, God's true Sabbath day and this, this counterfeit that the world is being forced to worship on. I'd want to disassociate myself with the counterfeit. Um, like I said, a church may say, well, hey, let's have a worship service then and we'll share with people the truth of how we're on the wrong day. This is what's happening. A lot of people are wondering what's happening in society. We have an opportunity to tell them. And, um, I don't think that that would be a a huge issue, but I'd feel very uncomfortable being forced to do anything, uh, in worship by uh, a secular government. Mm. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a good answer. I, I think I'd feel worse personally for those who don't worship God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean? It, yeah, true. But I don't think it'll. I think it'll come gradually, right? But great answer. Last question uh, of the night here, Tom. It's a comment slash question. Could someone? And it's a question, but I I see a comment in it. Could someone know all the things that are being presented in this series and still be deceived? Why?
2: Mm. You
1: go. <laughs> oh, I talked last
2: this year. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's possible to be deceived if we haven't got a heart of humility that's surrendered to God in daily yeah. seeking Jesus and getting to know him in his word. Because uh, unless, you ha- unless you love Jesus, then you can have a knowledge of all of these things, but it can miss your heart. Yeah, um, that's right. And that's the most important thing. You can get all the right answers, but still not be right with mm. god and so i'd encourage yes. us all to make sure that we know jesus personally for ourselves yeah. because at the end of the day you know yes all of these things are coming god's told us these things not to scare us but to prepare us why for yeah. the greatest event of all time jesus is coming again mm-hmm. That's right. this world is not our oh it's not forever it's not our yeah. final home and so i'd yeah. encourage us to make sure we know him and love the truth yeah. And embrace it and practice it. Yeah, that's
1: Absolutely. Real. Yeah. I mean, head knowledge, like Sharissa said, is, is nothing without a heart experience. Um, James chapter 2, verse uh, 19 says, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, a lot of people will miss heaven by 18 inches. I heard a preacher say once, mm-hmm. and that's not because they'll just be oh, reaching out as the door swings shut. Um, but that's the average distance from the human brain to the human heart is eighteen inches. And a lot of people will know it here, but not have developed a love for the truth. And um, therefore the Bible says they'll be deceived at the end of time. So it's not just about knowing it all. Mm-hmm. It's about living up to what you know with the strength and the help of Jesus. When you and think clinging about it, to him.
2: Sorry. When you think about it, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. He is the truth. So knowing mm-hmm. the truth is knowing Jesus.
0: That's right. That's right. James even says in James one twenty two don't just be hearers of the word mm-hmm. but be doers also mm-hmm. because if you're just a hearer and not a doer you're deceiving yourself, you're That's self-deceived right. mm-hmm. I think that uh, I just want to talk just a few more seconds about this because this is a really great great question. There's a verse in John 8:31. Jesus says, mm-hmm. or the Bible says then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him mm-hmm. if you continue in my word then you are my disciples indeed mm-hmm. and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So notice the the progression of thought. If you continue in my word, so you hear it, you don't just hear it and go, okay, cool, but you hear it, you decide to act upon it, and then you stay in the course, then you'll be my disciples, he says, Mm -hmm. and you'll know the truth. So the truth, uh, you need to know it not just on a theoretical but a practical level, and this is what Jesus is talking about, and then you'll be freed. Mm So, yeah, any closing comments, remarks before we say
1: goodbye to everyone uh, tonight? Oh, I would just say on, on the last note of what we were talking about, if you've been hearing these things for the first time and learning them uh, and believing them and saying, man, this makes sense, um, that's fantastic. Let us know. Call the number. We would love to connect with you. We'd love mm-hmm. to share with you the prophet- Prophetic codes series, um, the great controversy, the book. But we also want to let you know that it's not just about knowing it up here. It's about allowing the truth to travel to your heart and loving the truth. And as Charissa just mentioned, Jesus is the living embodiment of the truth. And so it's our prayer that you come to know him and you come to love him and uh, you come to want to serve him. And we hope that everything that we share in the Q&A and the presentations inspires you to do just that.
2: Yeah, And I'd just add, if you haven't got that copy of the free offer, the great controversy book, you must get it because it's mm. one of the best expositions on the subject that we actually talked about tonight that
0: i've read that's it and you know god is looking for people who want to know the truth
2: Mm.
0: who want to know him and so we believe that there are people watching we don't know how many that god is calling to 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 hear him and to know him and to follow him and people who in their heart of hearts they want to know the truth and they want to practice the truth and they want to be freed from the deceptions and the delusions of the world that we're in and so yeah if you're one of those people don't hesitate to yeah ring the number and uh shoot us a text and even if you just need help and you just want someone to pray with you or you want someone to visit you we're happy to to be there for you be praying for you all thanks for joining us tonight it's been a blessing to me and i hope as much it's been a blessing to you it's Uh, Sometimes you can't talk. But anyways, God bless you guys. (laughs) We hope that tonight's been as much of a blessing to you as it's been to us. Take care. Bye. God bless.